came back yesterday, I was just browsing on computer, typed in death by strangulation, death by suffocation, manslaughter trial, how to how to get off innocent, and I also typed in fucking Google how to get away with serious crimes. Marked on the neck with a suicide note, life sentence, boom. She, that, that girl is, by being beaten, that, that girl has ruined my life. Yeah, she has ruined my life. She did. She did ruin your life. Last year, just before Christmas, I received an email from the prison service in the UK. Elliot Turner, the man who murdered my daughter Emily, had written a letter to our family, and if I wanted to, someone would read it to me. I said no. My parents heard the letter and told me that in it, Turner took full responsibility for what he did. He admitted that he murdered Emily. He admitted that his behaviour had been very wrong, and he admitted that it was his fault, not Emily's, as he had said during the trial. I don't care if Turner is sorry or not. He murdered my daughter. And the fact that he is taking responsibility eight years later means nothing to me. I try not to think about Turner. But one day, I will have to forgive him. That is a concept many people don't understand. But it is part of my healing process. It will cut the connection between us. It'll mean I can be free from him and what he did. I will forgive Elliot Turner one day. But I am just not ready yet. My name is Mark Longley. My daughter Emily was murdered in 2011 when she was 17 years old. It's sometimes said that time heals all wounds, but that's crap. Death sucks, and we need to acknowledge that. This is a podcast about grief. It's about death and its impact on us. How we mourn, how we cope, how we treat grieving people. I've spoken to people who have lost parents and partners, grandparents and children. I've talked to friends, colleagues and academics. I want to figure out why grief is so hard to process. Why are we so awkward around those who are in pain? And what can we do to help people get through it? We need to talk more about death and grief. Because until we recognise it is part of life, we will never learn to live with it. Yeah, closure is a really interesting concept in terms of what are the expectations? It, it's that a death can be resolved, mm. you know. And this is one of the things in a modern in modern life that um, is a very well known theorist says that death is the scandal of reason, because in modern life every problem has a solution, and you know you just need enough time and enough resources, and you'll be able to solve that problem. But death remains unsolvable. This is the voice of Tracy McIntosh co-head at the School of Māori Studies at the University of Auckland. You know, we can extend it, we can push it back, we can do whatever, we can cut it into a thousand pieces. In the end, death will be there. But there is that 
nearly fervent need to be able to close this thing. I was asked endlessly if I had closure. Did Turner's arrest bring closure? Did his conviction bring closure? Did Emily's funeral give me closure? Closure is crap. It's something people ask about because they want reassurance that you're okay. They want to know you have moved on so they can move on. I think closure is a swear word, actually. <laughs> and telling people to, to bring in closure, well, you can hear in my accent I'm not English-speaking as my mm. first language. This is grief therapist Lise Groot-Alberts. But the sense of closure is that it is something locked in. Mm. It is something finished. And so to say to you, well, Mark, it's time for closure. Now, that has nothing to do with you. That's all about me. Mostly closure is, is used because it becomes, after a time, too uncomfortable that you haven't been fixed yet. Yeah. Or you are not well yet. Or you're not back to being marked the way you were yeah, before. Yeah. And realizing you never will be the mark that you were before. After Emily died, I tried to get my life back to how it had been. I wanted things to be the way they were before she died. But it was futile. It took me a while to realise this, but on the day she died, my old life ended. I was starting a whole new life in which Emily was no longer physically present. The same rules apply with trauma as they do with loss and vice versa. Mm. That, uh, you know, a, an event occurs which shakes your world. It changes it completely. Mm. And life won't be the same again. It will never be the same again. Peter Bray is the University of Auckland's head of counselling. He lost his wife, baby and stepson in a car accident two decades ago. One of the truths, I think, that, that people need to know is that they will never, ever go back there. Mm. Not in the same way. They may reconstruct it and... People talk about moving on, but they will never um, recreate it perfectly. And so in many ways, I think grief and loss is an opportunity or, or an event like that is an opportunity. And it sounds, I hope, not too callous to change, mm. to actually become somebody else. Peter Bray says in the days and weeks after he lost his wife, Bridget, and their two children, he experienced anger at Bridget, at the driver of the other car, at anything he could land blame on. I think you can play the blame game. Mm. And I think the, the, the person who I was before would have done that. But I think when it happened, you know, the, the guts were taken out of me. And um, I was reassembling myself. And yes, I was angry. And curiously, I was angry with Bridget, just for a wee while. But this, this is misplaced. It was just somebody to blame. I didn't blame the guy who, who drove into her because I it would have been as frightening for him as it, it, as it was for Bridget. I didn't think, even then, about being angry. Mm. And it doesn't enhance it. It just makes me feel shitty. Mm. It just, it's wasted energy. You know, there, there were moments where, truth to tell, I mean, I, I'd be sitting at home and, and having a drink mm. and maybe getting angry with the floor or getting angry with a, a cushion or getting mm. angry with myself. But I, I really felt I needed to know what this grief felt like. And, and I just, I really allowed it to enter me. And I think it just consumed me for a while. 
I think it's quite, you know, okay to feel like that. And I think one of the big, the big things about grief is it's okay. Mm. <laughs> Just, you know, you're going to do it. Do it your way. Uh, take charge of it. A week after Emily died, my sister-in-law, who rarely minces her words, said to me, you mustn't die with the dead. At the time, I thought this was an insensitive thing to say. But as time passed, it made more sense to me. There comes a point, or a series of points, when you decide that you are going to carry on, that you won't die with the dead. When Emily was killed, it almost killed me as well. I thought I would never get over the loss. I thought the grief would never be manageable. There were nights when if someone had told me as I fell asleep that I would never wake up, I would have closed my eyes. But I didn't want my other daughter, Hannah, to have to cope with another death. I knew Emily wouldn't have wanted the man who murdered her to change our lives any more than he already had. But in those first months, it was hard to see how I was going to break through the fog of grief that surrounded me. You can't avoid dying, but you also can't avoid being with people who are going to die. It's painful, but it's, it's you know, wounds ache. There's no getting away from it. We can't escape them. So, which is why, you know, my, my philosophy has, has been very, very positive around it because I know that to go the other way is returning to the oblivion I felt in those first few minutes when yeah. I was told that, that mm -hmm. they had died or were going to maybe die. And I don't want to go back there. I'm happy to talk about it and I'm happy to write about it, but I do not think it's a good place for me to go because then I do, as you said earlier, you know, I die with the dead. You know, I go and live with them. I got through three counsellors before I found one I liked. I didn't want to talk about how I felt or why I was feeling what I did. I wanted to know how I could get out of bed in the morning, how I could go to work tomorrow, how I could get through each day. One of the most difficult things was learning to manage my grief while being around other people. To put it bluntly, I was sad. I wanted to hide away, but life doesn't really allow that. My counsellor told me to think of my grief as a balloon. In order to manage it, I had to exert pressure to keep the balloon underwater all day. When I got home, I could let the balloon float out of the water. It was a simple analogy, but it helped me understand my grief. My grief, although always there, became easier to manage. It was no longer controlling me. I could control it. It was a breakthrough moment. I was no longer afraid of my grief. I had a, a quite a spiritual experience in the hospital when the, when when uh, Freddie was dying, and his his head unfortunately was 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 somewhat crushed, and he had a shunt in his head at the hospital, and I sat there with him for a long time with him in my arms for many hours. I had no idea what was really happening except I was holding him, and there was a moment. Um, when the pressure in his head was building. And I've, it seemed like he could move all of a sudden and that he no longer had the shunt in his head and that he was sitting with me. And I looked across the room. This is, a, this is a, a, an ordinary hospital ward. And there, there was a tree growing. And under the tree was Bridget, 
and uh, and I and um, he he slipped down from me, and uh, he was holding my hand, and um, he looked towards his mum, and his mum was under the tree by this river, and and she she lifted her arms up and she looked at him, and she smiled and she she beckoned him, and he turned his head to look at me and smiled and just let go of my mm. hand and um, the next thing I knew he was the, the monitor was telling us that oh, he dear. died um, I think it makes me feel not that I necessarily believe in afterlife or anything like that I just feel th that it's a satisfying moment for me to, to, to think about, to dwell on and it's full of goodness. It's not full of accident. It's not full of death. It, it's just full of family. Peter says we all make choices in the face of loss about how we are going to manage it. I think we can become a victim of it or we can become a proactive survivor of it. Those decisions, consciously or unconsciously, are made that we either allow grief for a while to overcome us. We struggle with it, we get to know it, we become friends with it. And then we say, okay, how are you going to help me now? How are you going to make me a better person now? There is the possibility, it's not, not for everybody, and it's, there's not a silver lining that means that mm. it's all going to be okay now, but there is a possibility that people do grow, that this is a growing thing and that you can use it to transform yourself and to do better for yourself. I knew when it, when it happened for me, I thought, well, this is the time when either I can kill myself and everyone will understand. They will literally right, understand. Yeah. Or I can get on and be the person I always thought I should be. So what's the choice? So I'm still here and I'm hoping that's working. One of the aspects I wanted to examine in this podcast was how the horrific experience of losing someone you love can change you. You come out the other side a different person. And can this be a positive thing? The idea of growing through grief is a hard concept to vocalise. But it is my experience and that of many I interviewed for this podcast. It's been painful growth and one I would never have wished for. I would rather have Emily. But it has happened. And in many ways... I'm a better person for it. Amazing Grace. Last year, the British backpacker Grace Mullane was killed in New Zealand. Grace was travelling here, and her death impacted the whole country. So, on behalf of New Zealand, I want to apologise to Grace's family. Your daughter should have been safe here. And she wasn't, and I'm sorry for that. I spoke at her vigil as a father who had lost a daughter to a violent crime and as an advocate for ending male violence towards women. I've thought all day about what I'm going to say tonight and it was really hard to find the words, so I'm just going to talk as a father who lost, who lost his daughter uh, to another man as well. And, and um, to have to go to the morgue and identify your daughter's body for a father... In 2011... I became an ambassador for White Ribbon, 
an organisation that speaks directly to men about family violence. You know, we need to change this. We need to stop it. There's too many women dying at the hands of, of men. This is something I wouldn't have done had Emily been alive. The father of murdered teenager Emily Longley says New Zealanders tolerate too much domestic violence and that has to change. And he's not just talking about people who are physically aggressive. He says others have to share some of the burden. I've been to my darkest place. I've looked eyeball to eyeball at my worst fear, losing a child. And I'm a stronger person because of it. I've tried to use that strength to help other people. I think Emily would approve. I think probably the big, the biggest thing that I've learned is a, a sense of perspective. For Sophie Hill, the loss of both her parents have given her a perspective on life's priorities. I know what's important <clears throat> and there's, there's, it takes a lot to rattle me, I guess. My colleague at work said the other day, I don't ever get emotionally hijacked at work. Mm. Um, and I think she's, she's probably right because I, for me, work is work and I care about it deeply and it's yeah. a, a passion of mine and I love what I do, but I don't sort of sweat the small stuff. So I guess I'm, I'm happy that I have that sense of perspective, but I'd rather not. You know, people say to me often, you're so strong. I don't feel strong at all, you know, and I, I guess it's, it's like, what's the alternative, you know? Do I just crumble? Do I stay in bed? Do I become an alcoholic? Do I, what do I do? For Sophie and her husband, Adam, that focus now is their son, Jack. I know that it's natural for children to lose their parents. And even though it's happened to me young and the way that my dad died wasn't natural and it wasn't, mm -hmm. it shouldn't have happened. But my focus is my son, his life, making sure that he is loved and cared for and that he yeah. has what he needs. After Lee Screw Albert's daughter Nana died, Lee threw herself into her work as a distraction from her grief. I thought, if I become a super-duper therapist then I fix everybody else, mm. I'll feel much better myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's bull, of course, because <laughs> it doesn't work. So, you know, I did burn out, and, and, and that was the best thing that happened to me, I think. It forced me to look on the inside of myself again mm. and not try to find the healing of my pain by fixing you and everybody else around. And, I mean, it's nonsense because I can't. So I set myself up for failure anyway. I started to face my pain more and bit by bit uh, being with it and, and finding a place for it and expressing it in whatever way felt right. When I started to realize to lean in and to face mm -hmm. my grief and, and my loss and my pain and my despair at times, what happened then is uh, I realized uh, with all that uh, I, I could grow and continue to grow. I don't think that ever will stop. And also do the work out of a place of choice instead of out of a place of pain. I asked Lise, would she have gone down this path of palliative care education and grief and loss counselling if Nana had not died? I would have no idea because I have no other experience. That's a hard one. Would I have done this? Would I have gone this way? Probably not. However, um, it's brought me um, 
I mean, it's rich and it has my passion. There's a gorgeous saying, which is, the life I touch for ill or good will touch another life, and that in turn another, until who knows where the trembling stops or in what far place my touch will be felt. So, and I think that's with my pain too. How do I uh, transform my grief and my pain and my sense of loss and not into bitterness or into collapse? But how can I use that as fertilizer? How do you turn the shit into fertilizer? It literally is. Or how do you turn the shit into gold? When Emily was around three and a half years old, we went on holiday to Florida. The hotel complex had been advertised as where the Kennedys vacationed. It was on a spit with water all around. And you could stand on the jetties and make a noise and dolphins would come. My daughters, Emily and Hannah, loved it. There was a pool and we would spend a lot of time there. Emily loved the water and wanted to learn how to swim with our armbands. So she took them off and would stand at the edge of the pool and just dive in. She would try to swim but couldn't break the surface. So I would reach down and pluck her out. I'd hold her high above me, throw her up or down in the air a few times before putting her back on the side of the pool where she would do it all again. I have no idea if she knew how dangerous it was or if she thought she would just swim her way out. Or maybe she just had absolute faith I would always be there to catch her. Uh, Emily was a very well-loved, beautiful, sweet 17-year-old girl who unfortunately got into a relationship with Elliot Turner, an egotistical, cash-rich thug. I think the investigation uncovered his true character. You know, he was very, very manipulative, very threatening. Um, and, I, and I feel that the conviction is a just reward for the type of individual that he is. In particular, I'd like to pay tribute to the parents of Emily, Mark and Caroline Longley, and their family for the support that they've given us throughout the investigation, and above all, their dignity. When Emily died, I disconnected. I craved human contact, but at the same time I recoiled, like a raw nerve being touched if someone approached me. It's a paradox, and I get that. I made this podcast because I wanted to reach people. I wanted to start a conversation. If you know someone who is in the depths of grief, know that they are confused they are in pain, yet they also need you. Be there for them. And if you are grieving, then I know that nothing I can say will ease your pain. But I can tell you this. I found a way through my grief. I know it doesn't feel like it now, but there is hope. <laughs> My daughter's life was cut short. A girl who was so bright and beautiful and loved. There has been a lot of pain. The pain of knowing I would never see her again. The pain of never being able to hug her again. 
the pain of living my life without her. But the joy of holding her for the first time, the joy of being her dad, the joy of seeing who she was becoming, and the joy of the 17 years I had with her. That joy far outweighs the pain of losing her. And I would do it all again. In a heartbeat. And we do that, baby. We do, don't we? Death, a podcast about love, grief and hope was produced by Maggie Wicks audio engineering by Asher Bastian graphics by James Brown and Vinay Ranchot to learn more go to newshub.co.nz forward slash podcasts